Hello, and welcome to a very special A-List, the podcast that asks the world's top advertising professionals how they got started in the business. I'm Tom Chrisman, Chief Creative Officer at DeMassimo Goldstein, an inspiring action agency in New York City. And speaking of DeMassimo Goldstein, an inspiring action agency in New York City, today I get to talk to my boss, my partner, Mr. Mark DeMassimo, the DeMassimo in DeMassimo Goldstein. He has been the owner and uh, runner of this place since he opened it in 1996, which is, you know, it sounds like a billion years ago. That was, uh, it was the 1900s, kids. And he's in the studio with me today, and we're going to talk about him sort of falling into the, to the business as well. You know, we all, we all come from someplace, and we're going to find out where Mark came from. But first... The A-List is brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. Advertising age called Ad House New York's newest, smallest, and arguably hippest ad school. Their philosophy, an ad class is only as relevant as the professional who teaches it. Ad House classes are taught by the best in the biz at the agencies where they work. You get to go right in there and see what's up. You get 10 weeks of classes for just 600 bucks. To apply, go to adhousenyc.com. And for the latest news, follow AdHouseNYC on Facebook. And now, my interview with Mr. Mark DeMassimo. I hope I don't screw this up. Hey, it's Mark DeMassimo. Oh, in the studio. Hi, Tom. Well, I, I found you in your office and dragged you up here. It's a to, pleasure uh, to uh, to see you. It's as if I don't get to see you all the time. Every day. Actually, I did kind of miss you because you were on vacation I last was. week. How was that? I was on staycation. Staycation. I lost my glasses, but other than that, it was great. You're damn handsome without the glasses. I, I think you Thanks ought to so maybe much. go to the contact lenses for now. No, I have no facial features without the without the glasses. It's they're, not they're true. You, you've developed them. Yeah, you have. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and we've known each other. Speaking of developing, uh, we've known each other for 25 years. 20. Uh, yeah, 25, 25 years. years. Easily 25 years. It'll be yeah. It'll be 25 years. I think. I think this summer. Yeah, it's 25 that, years ago. Uh, I came over to Kirschenbaum and said, "Hey, hire me," and a mullet. Yes, and, uh, yeah. yes, and you hired me anyway. Yes, you were you were you were sweaty and talented. Sweaty and talented. I I was I needed talent. And, yeah, and uh, yeah, it all worked out. But that's in the middle of your story. Yeah. I want to start where you grew. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in, uh, in mostly in New Jersey, actually, uh, a state that's like produced it. some great, great um, advertising people and great, great people. Few great A-listers. Great A-listers. Um, I was born um, in Montclair, although often my uh, my bios have said that I was born in Edison mm-hmm. because I actually did grow up in Edison from about one and a half till 12 or so. Yeah. I don't remember Montclair. Um, it's know. nice. Yeah, nice. It's nice. I don't remember it from when I was a kid. We lived in New Brunswick too. Okay. My parents were young. My mom, uh, was in college. Yeah. My dad was, was in college too. He was getting his master's degree and, you know, they were like young and poor and Catholic and producing babies. I was the <laughs> first and my sister came 16 months later. Oh, so wow. yeah. So I was born into an emergency basically, <laughs> uh, in uh, Montclair, so then moved to Edison. It was a real working class town. Uh-huh. Uh, was, what did Dad do? Uh, Dad was an electrical engineer. Wow! Uh, so he was uh, he was working on silicon chips. Uh, working for um, he worked for a place called GV Controls during that time, but then RCA, and and then ultimately uh, he was a GE guy for a long time. Oh, okay. 
Like Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, yeah, Kurt worked. Vonnegut was. Did he work with Kurt Vonnegut? No, I think oh, okay. Kurt was uh, Kurt was the generation before. Oh, okay. So Kurt was up in Schenectady too. Uh, he right. was in PR at, at Schenectady, and uh, <laughs> but I, you know, but 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 in my mind and my life as a young, you know, as a boy and young teenager. Dad was speaking into one ear and Kurt was speaking into the other. Yeah. I I loved Kurt Vonnegut. He was my favorite writer growing yeah. up. You know, I still have Kurt Vonnegut by my nightstand. Yeah, he's great. Um, what, uh, when was it that you, and what did mom do? Sorry. Uh, so my so my mom was a biology major and that which led to no end of jokes because of of these, these biology experiments that she was uh she was starting to show, you know, oh, okay, she was, right. and she was taking me to class with her in her senior year as well, too. How old were you then? Uh, I was one. I was wow. one. I was born at the end of her junior year, and then she took me to class through her senior year. And uh, when... Was that when, scandalous at the time? Uh, it Well, the uh, the male professors, many of them found it found it very annoying. Right. Very annoying that that they were wasting their time educating somebody who was obviously going to be a housewife. Oh. Like, why do it? So she really, uh, she kind of had to put up with that, you know, yeah. just to get get where she wanted to go. So I, I'm proud of her Yeah, that she did. When when she graduated and my dad, you know, got his cap and gown, my grandmother, I guess maybe I inherited it from, had a sort of PR uh, mind. She's like, what an image. She sewed me a little cap and gown. Oh my goodness. And she put us in front of their the grand piano. Uh my father and my mother holding me. Yeah. Uh, all in our caps and gowns and she sent it and it was on the cover of like the South Orange newspaper. Yeah, that's awesome. Is there a picture of that that we can uh, include There is a in picture this? it is on my Facebook uh, feed right. but I'll be happy we'll to, have to, to, to we'll have to grab one of those. I think I have seen that. Um, I thought you just graduated so young. I thought you were just, you know, I was not that precocious. Uh, I wasn't. Um, and when did you like, when did you start becoming, uh, interested in the creative arts and, and sort of communication and, and things like that? I, you know, I, I, uh, I was definitely one of those kids where, uh, where the parents would get the calls, um, uh, we're worried about Mark. He seems to be staring out the window, watching the construction across the street, or I'm not sure he's listening in class, you know? Uh, so I, I was, I was, I was that kid, a space cadet, a absent-minded professor at best. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of it. And I definitely was in my own head and my own ideas and, right. you know, thinking things through and imagining, you know, yeah. um, and I uh, and did I, your parents uh, encourage that, or was it like, hey, get you know, get stick to the books? Because they seemed like they were. It was both. It was both. I mean, it would they. Uh, you know, my mom runs runs a glass uh, art studio with my sister right now. Oh, wow. She she was she was painting. You know, I ended up playing the piano because my dad got her a piano. Uh, you know, engineering is if you if you. Do it the way my dad do it. it does it is pretty creative. You're inventing things, and, yeah. and he was proud of it. So on the one hand, uh, they weren't against creative people or creative professions. They didn't think you couldn't make money as a creative person. Uh, but and they they weren't sure that my that my teachers were weren't just dumb. 
either. So they were, <laughs> yeah. they, they were, there was a little bit of right. arrogance too, I think maybe with them. But on the other hand, yeah, they wanted me to get my shit together and they thought it was important, you know, for me to, for, to do well in school. Mm-hmm. And they, and I remember my mom, you know, once saying to me, this is much later, if you're going to do something, don't you have the pride to do it well? And I was like, but why? It takes so much more effort to do it well. If you don't care that much about it, why would you do it well? Right. <laughs> so That's the young Mark DeMassimo. Yeah. They were, she especially was an overachiever. You know, uh, she, was. she was an A student. Uh, I mean, to go to class with your child. And, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's over uh, beyond the call of duty, I guess. Yeah. She was, she was used to straight A's in her life. So I think it might've been hard for her to understand why I cared about different things. I yeah. probably took after my dad, who was a contrarian. He, he loved what he did. He was going for his PhD. He never got it. His professor died. But um, <laughs> yeah, he was close to them. Then his advisor died. That's the worst. And being an engineer, he did a calculation and he's like, you know what? It's not worth my spending more time on it. Oh, he really did that. He did the math. He did the math. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and in high school, were you? Did you take creative classes? So I, were you? What, I, were, I, what did you want to be? Well, I wrote my. Up? So I was uh, first off, I was a musician. I was in bands, and I wrote songs. Oh, okay, um, right. So I started doing that, and then in eighth grade, I wrote my first short story. And I just did, and it made my mom cry and my dad laugh, and uh, my teacher gave me a B minus, and my uh, and, and the head of the <laughs> English, like good story, English right? department said it was a good story. So yeah. uh, he just wanted to look at the guy kid who wrote the story. Um, what was it was about my home life, but it was fictionalized. Right, uh, Irma Bombeck, uh, a small style. boy. Uh, notices that his parents are in the backyard. He goes into the kitchen. He gets on a stool. He reaches, uh, he opens the cabinet. He reaches the top of the cabinet and gets a gun. No, we didn't have any guns at home. Thank God. People would have died. Uh, He pulls the gun down and he makes up some story in his head about, you know, robbers in the kitchen. And he pulls the trigger and the thing's loaded. He flies off the stool onto the floor and his parents run in. And they're, you know, they're like, we told you never to touch that yeah. gun. And we, you could have been killed. And they're, they're sort of caring for him. But they take the gun and they put it right back in the same place in the, oh. on the cabinet. And, uh, and, the, and the boy up to bed. And then the parents start to argue about this pile of toys in the, in the living room. And, um, and what you realize through the argument is that the mother is just incredibly attached like a child to these toys. So it's in a sense, the boy's childhood, but the mother is childlike and attached to it. And the father does not see that at all. He wants them gone. The kid doesn't play with them anymore. Yeah. And the boy hears her walk back into the kitchen, walk back out, into the living room, bang. Oh my goodness. Drop. He hears her walk up the stairs, lie in her bed. And the end of the story is, um, I love you, Teddy. She sighed. <laughs> oh my goodness. So there's That's a teddy dark. bear in the pile. Super dark. Yes. So, <laughs> oh, she wasn't saying it to the son. She was saying it to her teddy to bear. To the teddy bear. Yeah. She's crazy. So and that's why I got to be minus because my teacher said this is just crazy. It's too dark than any, than any any family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
But, you know, I guess it was the way I felt about things at that moment. Yeah. And it was a great way to just get it out. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you were you were a dark you were a dark kid. I was. Is that is that what was going on? Yeah, I was. I was um, a dark kid. What uh, and did that? Did you did you then think, oh, I want to be a writer or were you? Yeah. Yeah. I loved, uh, you know, I, I, I liked I think I the the it was a. I think I felt kind of powerless, you know, in mm-hmm. this in this young family where people didn't understand each other in this, you know, uh, Vietnam era uh, uh, neighborhood where people didn't understand each other. And, were, right. and I, I think I felt just kind of lost in the mix and alienated. And that's why I was dark. And and the story was the first time I was able to get people to focus on my point of view in a way. You right. Know? Yeah. It was a powerful and it wasn't I think I could get attention for being good or being smart or, or whatever. Right. But this was a way to put out the dark stuff that was in me and actually have, yeah. so to be known, you yeah, know, yeah, in a yeah. way, things yeah. that would have been unacceptable if I just expressed them directly, yeah. like, you know, what, what, whatever the thoughts were, mm-hmm. not that I had conscious thoughts. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was an awesome experience. I thought I want to be like Kurt Vonnegut. I want to, yeah. I want to write short stories. Yeah. I imagined myself in a VW used VW bug with a typewriter yeah. in the back. Right. You know, I don't need to live anywhere. Smoking I'll just drive from place and, to place. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Smoking cigarettes. <laughs> I was already smoking. Uh, maybe if I sold the story, a little bag, you know, right. a, yes. a little bag of weed That's in the right. back or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was the dream. Yeah. And like Wayne Dyer, you know, the guy who wrote The Erroneous Zones, it's the first marketing story I ever heard oh, okay. of, of a writer. Right. Apparently he wrote this book. No one would publish it. He got a VW. He went from town to town, knocked on the door of the radio station and said, I wrote this book. Can I talk about it on air? And they'd let him. Right. And ultimately like was content. a bestseller. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll write something worth marketing. And then yeah. I'll, so, so what was his name? His name was uh, Wayne Dyer, D-Y-E-R. He, he's, he's died recently, but he wrote Your Erroneous Zones. Your Erroneous which Zones. Your Erroneous, which sounds like Your Erogenous Zones, which sure. I think was I also think good marketing on for. his part. Yeah. But he wrote a lot of other stuff, too, and, he, and ultimately ended up one, being one of those PBS guys. Oh, okay. Uh, but, yeah, it started a whole career. That's so. amazing. I did not know that. Wayne Dyer, The Erroneous, Your Erroneous Zones. So Check I actually got interested in this because I thought, you know, good writers don't get to mate and have children and live in one place and all right. of that. Right. Good writers that know how to market themselves do. Yeah. So, so it was always connected to marketing uh, for you. The, yeah. I just like, thought if you're going to be a writer, you're going to have to was... market because there are a lot of starving writers. Yeah. Uh, so and that I, came I, from your grandmother, you think? You, uh, you said she was in PR and... I, you know, my, my grandmother was, uh, my grandmother was a, was a painter mm-hmm. and she won shows, you know, there are painting shows and just, yeah, sure. and, and she actually worked as a painter of right. like, um, uh, lampshades back in the, you know, uh, what's not art deco, but art nouveau yeah. era, right. Before, okay. before, uh, the depression. But then she went to the actuarial department of, of, of MetLife and she was a really good investor. Okay. Um, and that's the, you know, I, the version of her I knew was able to live in a house in Short Hills and, pay, and, and paint. Right. You know, and I thought, well, that's the thing to, 
you don't need that do much that. money, but to yeah. have enough money so you can do your art and not worry and still right. to live a nice little bourgeois life yeah. and still be a creative person who expresses themselves. Right. That was the dream. Um, and when did you, where'd you go to school? Where, where'd you go to college? You went to Syracuse. Uh, yeah. So I, I went to three different colleges okay. uh, because, uh, you know, uh, uh, my dad was uh, was frugal and and he working on an engineer's salary and my mom was a was a teacher but she but she was teaching uh, for the flexibility with raising she had a a, a third kid my my sister Cara mm-hmm. eleven years after uh, my sister Maria and I uh, so she was working in private schools and you know bringing home next to no money right um, and. Uh, so they said, you're going to go to a, a state school. State schools are good. We're right. in New York State. There are a lot to choose from. Yeah. I went to SUNY Fredonia to study music uh, for, uh, and I was, I did it for two weeks, but I discovered the library. <laughs> and I also realized, you know, I'm, it's funny. It was like my first profession. It made me really, um, made me somewhat practical. I realized, you know, that, there's a big difference between 98th or 99th percentile and, and the, and Paul McCartney and Mozart and stuff. And I, I mean, even though I could play songs by ear and I was in bands and I could be a professional and stuff, I knew guys my age and younger who could listen to a symphony and then just sit down and play the whole thing on the piano. Right. And it was going to take me the rest of my life to be able to do anything like that. So, so but, like your dad, you kind of did the con- the calculation. I, in, in a sense, without yeah. the math. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without doing the actual Without math. the math. Yeah. yeah. I did that. I basically was like, I, and it won't be fun. What would be fun was reading every last thing in that library. Right. I just was so curious about why people believe what they believe and why we're in the mess we were in. Because we it seemed we were in a mess. Right. So the this source is, still is Vietnam. <laughs> Vietnam era. Yeah, well, it was yeah, it was the seventies now, and it yeah. was, Vietnam was over, but people, uh, it wasn't like things were suddenly right. We had Watergate, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know the Bee Gees. I mean, things were weird. <laughs> Watergate and the Bee Gees, <laughs> yeah. both in first one. Watergate, then the Bee Gees, yeah, singers, songwriters. Um, and so you were there for two weeks, and then you said, uh, then I, don't I, I be went here to anymore. the secretary of the music department. And I said, you know, I'm going to drop out of the music department because I want to study. Uh, liberal arts. And I, and, and she said, how can you do that? You took somebody's space. <laughs> and I said, geez, I, you know, I'm, I'm 18. I didn't, I didn't think of it that way. I, I, but how could I keep doing it if it's not what I want to do just because I took somebody's space, you wow. know, I can't you call somebody and let yeah. them in now. And so anyway, I did leave the department. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a lot of trip. baggage to throw on some kid. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, somehow I shook it off and yeah. I went and I just read everything I could find. And I, I, I the Chicago seven, you right. know, the people who stood up to, to Nixon and, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, uh, that's, those are a Kubi who used to be on the air here in New York, Curtis Kubi, who used to be on, uh, uh-huh. until very recently was, was one of the, was a young assistant lawyer in the Chicago seven okay. trial back in 1969 or something like right. that. So that um, was, that was what was fascinating to you hearing about these. I like these dissidents, people that... who, with the courage to just say what they really think, mm-hmm. people like you oh. <laughs> fascinated yeah. me, you yeah. know, maybe yeah, that's yeah. how, cause it wasn't safe. I didn't feel to just come out with it. You yeah. Know, it's not, it's it. not safe. <laughs> you had to think about it. Um, uh, 
And and so Fredonia, and then you said you went to three schools, though. What, yeah, so for how us, does that work? So I spent a year and a half at Fredonia, and, and I got the grades I didn't get in high school. Uh, and uh, my guidance counselor said, you should transfer to a, if this is what you want to study, you should transfer to a, quote, smarter school. <laughs> um, and she had gone to Cornell's Human Ecology School. So she said, why don't you go apply for industrial and labor relations? I said, what's industrial and labor relations? Yeah, what is industrial? She said, you don't read about it. It, it is, uh, it basically trains labor negotiators, mm-hmm. uh, union leaders. Mm-hmm. And there used uh, to be unions. There used to be things called unions. Yeah. We'll unions. And they were, they were yeah. not yet dead, uh, or dying. Um, sorry, unions. Yeah. I know you're still there. Uh, and, uh, or, or, uh, personnel management people. And I was like, well, I, I don't want to be in a union or a personnel manager. <laughs> uh, but I found it all same reason I liked political science and social science. I found it really interesting. Yeah. So I went there with my long hair and scraggly mustache and interviewed with the guy and with my good college grades and my crappy high school grades and my, and my good test scores. Um, and the guy said, this is a professional school. It's for people who want to be in union leadership or, mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't want that. I want to, but I'm, I'm interested in it intellectually. I'd like to study it. And he said, you don't understand. This is a professional school and it's for people who really want to do these things. And I said, I think you have room for one. I really do. Just one that just really wants to study this as an intellectual <laughs> uh, pursuit. Um, so anyway, then they let me in. <laughs> and the, and as, you could have just told him, yeah, 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 I'm interested. I, no, I, you, you were, you stick I, to your I principles. didn't know better either. Yeah. I, I didn't know better, but also, but anyway, they let me in. So, and he was right. It, I, I did not enjoy it. I liked Cornell, <laughs> but, but I like, you had to memorize like manuals for personnel management. And I couldn't have given a right. crap about person. I didn't even like the idea of management. I didn't like the idea of business, yeah. money, man, any, right. any of it at that yeah. point, you know? Right. Yeah. So it was way too mature for me. <laughs> but afterwards, when um, when they asked me to leave, at least for a semester, to go <laughs> see if I get my act together, um, I thought I'm pretty darn convincing because <laughs> I convinced that guy who knew better right. to let me in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with with the with the barest of credentials, even though I wouldn't even tell him right. what he needed said he needed to hear. Yeah. So that that was a seed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was like, oh, so then, then did that lead you to think about communications or, or? Yeah. So I thought, you know, people said, you're, you're my dad, who, again, the practical guy, he said, um, you know, of the people I know, you remind me most of these, these, these technical salespeople because they're, they like to be social. They, they're persuasive. They, they're interested in, in people, maybe more so than engineers and mm-hmm. some of these hard, hard nosed business people. Um, uh, but they're smart enough to learn the, the, the arcane technical stuff that really matters in a more technical field. Of course, he was at GE, so that's yeah. who he knew. So he said, you know, I, I see you as like a lawyer because you, you like to argue ar- things, argue and persuade or, or, uh, maybe in technical sales. So, I was like, yeah, yeah. Then neither of those things sound very interesting to me. Maybe the lawyer. I like the idea of arguing cases yeah, yeah. in front of a jury. Right. 
Uh, anyway, I studied social science. I put a band on the road. And then I went to career development when I needed to make money. And I took all of their like personality tests and that sort of stuff. And they said, you know, you should go into either political communications or advertising. And they said, your values are more political uh, communications. You, right. you seem to care more about social stuff than, than the making money and all of that. But then when I met the people in the two different fields and found that the people who weren't making money seemed really miserable. <laughs> and the people who, who were seemed to be, you know, like laughing about. Well, they were high. So they may have been. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize how cynical they were at the time. Yeah. I was like, maybe I'll go be with that tribe. I'll be with that advertising tribe. And so when, when you say when you met with them, did you consciously go and say, I'm going to meet with some people that do that? I'm gonna I meet did. With some, I how did. did you, how'd you do that? I, uh, uh, I called uh, through a couple of my professors. I found one person in politics in New York City. And I got that person, I called that person. And, and anyway, everyone was happy to talk to me, but it was the Reagan administration. Yeah. And they were Democrats in New York City and they were some of the most miserable people ever. Like it was just a terrible, terrible yeah. life right there. The world was, was moving, yeah. much like now. The unions were being busted. <laughs> the unions were being busted and all that. Yeah. It was like, it, we, it felt like now probably feels mm -hmm. <laughs> um, to, to similar people. Um, but uh, so I, I ended up talking to three, but but I was just like, no, that's, it's not my tribe. I just don't yeah. want to go and just lose and lose. And then if I ever win, I'm going to feel bad about myself. Right. You know, it just felt like that's it's I, I also just didn't think I was emotionally strong enough to go and 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 fight miserable fights. Right. Um, I, I mean, I also was an intern in a psychiatric hospital. And I thought after that, I loved that experience. I loved being involved in people's lives when it was really important to them and thinking about how to help and all of that. But I thought, you know, do I really want to spend my life dealing with such darkness? You know, I already had enough darkness in me. I yeah. wanted to, I wanted to like move over to the light. Yeah. So, uh, so you met with ad people too. Yeah. I met with that. Who did you? Well, well, first off, it was much harder to meet with ad people because uh. back then you would send a letter and a resume and you would get a dutiful uh, note in the mail some weeks later saying your resume is on file and we promise to call you when a job comes up. Mm -hmm. And I'm still waiting. <laughs> BBDO, still waiting. Ogilvy, still waiting. Um, David Ogilvy will get back to you. Yeah, uh, if they, they, they never Soon. did call. But I knew some people in uh, the direct marketing divisions of agencies, which were growing faster and a lot less cool. And so... Um, you know, uh, people like me who didn't have portfolios and who were kind of up for, for whatever job just, just to get in and mm -hmm. learn, um, had a shot. So my friends, the Newman brothers, um, were at Ogilvy Direct and I got a, an interview with Chuck Garigula mm -hmm. at, at, uh, Ogilvy Direct. Mm -hmm. And he sat at one end of a long table and I sat at the other. I mean, yeah, it was like uh, network. That yeah. scene in network, right? Where where you're talking across the table, long conference table, and at the ends. And uh, he uh, he he pulled. He said, "What do you have for me?" And I had like my college thesis. 
again, dark psychiatric internment of political dissidents in the Soviet Union. That's what I wrote it on. So he looked at it and he went through it. And he's like, oh, I said, look, I can speak a lot of languages. And one of them is that sort of academic language. And they actually wrote from a communist perspective, you know, right. a Marxist perspective. Uh, and it's a critique of the Soviet Union, but from a, from a communist perspective, that wasn't easy to do. And he said, what's this word, legitimate? Um, that's, not, that's not a word. So I, there, I said, you know, within that language, it is a word. And, and he said, don't look at the wall when you talk to me, look at me. Wow. So I looked at him, we continued the rest of the interview and I got a job offer. Wow. Um, and that was, so I was going to start a Monday, <laughs> three Mondays hence after that. Then the Friday before it was merger mania time, yeah. late eighties, the Friday before he called and said, Mark, I'm sorry, we've had a hiring freeze. And I was fresh to this world. Yeah. And I, I said, oh, but that's okay because I already have a job. I'm starting <laughs> Monday, right? And he said, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Um, but I do have a friend at BBDO Direct uh -huh. and who I can refer you to and who knows, maybe you can get something over there. Yeah. So I met Charlie Mosier okay. over at- yeah. uh, I know that name. At uh, BBDO Direct, uh, who was an account guy there at the time in a side office, almost like a cubicle, but there was a side office with my, yeah. my introduction to Matt. It was Madison Avenue. Yeah. 383 or 385 Madison, where BBDO used to be. Yeah. Uh, and um, I met with him. He's like, yeah, yeah. Chuck says good things about you. I don't know. We might have something. And soon thereafter, I was an assistant account executive at BBDO Direct. And did you want to be an account person? Were you just like, I just want a job? Were you like, this the, seems interesting? What about it was like, okay. The, the plan in my mind at that time was because I love communication and getting people heard and thinking about it and all of that. Mm -hmm. I would, I'll be an account guy during the day so I could save myself to write my my short novels. stories yeah, and yeah. novels at night. Uh -huh. And I, I worried whether I'd ever be able to write a novel. I had a short attention span and I wrote short, short stories. Yeah, yeah. Almost like that one I told you, like yeah. I, that's the thing I do naturally. They're, they're, they're two and a half pages and they're like, they're half poem and half story. And I thought, yeah. I don't know how commercial that is, Yeah. but maybe I'll, maybe my writing will grow, you know, mm -hmm. uh, if I spend time on it at night. I, I feared if I wrote during the day, stuff I didn't really want to write, I would have nothing left for, oh, for writing at night. And that, but I knew nothing. How I was you, 25. Wh where did you come up with that, though? I, talking to people and right. thinking. I right, had right. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. no experience at all. Yeah. What I, what I, and I was missing a key fact, which is there is no night when you get into advertising. <laughs> uh, there's no like time. I, mean, I did ultimately work in, in James Patterson's department. Yeah. And, you know. JWT. I think he, I think Jim lost his significant other mm. uh, to cancer, I think, before he really started getting up at 4 a.m., writing all morning and then working all day. Right, right. You know, before that, when he had a life, he wasn't really able to do that. Yeah. But I think he had a period there where I think he was in, he was in mourning. He, he was, and, and it was writing and it was work. Yeah. Um, 
and that so you know i wanted to have a life and i wanted to have a job and yeah. i wanted to write so when the opportunity came up uh to write a couple of ads uh i mean the creative department had given up and and so i was able they were like sure this is, B, this is a bbdo at bbdo for integrated resources a uh-huh. uh a uh, financial services company. I wrote a few ads and so the creative department had sort of ads too hard. And yeah, my, uh, my, my boss, the, the account director had been fired. Uh, the account was hard. The agency was being fired by half its clients at the time. And, and the creative department was like, if you want to take a shot at it, we're busy. Uh, they'd already gone through several, several rounds. Um, so I, I, I wrote 11, 12 ads. I think they were pretty rational, you mm-hmm. know, or or tricky, right, you know, because right. I'd never written an ad before. Um, but uh, they said, if you want to be a junior copywriter, you can be a junior copywriter, but you can't try to tell us what to do anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you had to choose, like, are I had you going to be an account person or are you going to be a junior copywriter? And I thought, I don't have a book. I can't do what one of your previous interviewees did and just steal a whole book. <laughs> um, so, so I, when am I going to get this chance? It would take me forever to. So maybe I'll be a junior copywriter and work on my book simultaneously. Uh-huh. I just thought I am a writer. I was identified as a writer, so I I should I should take this. My boss was Eileen uh, Healy Carlson, who thank God for her. She. Was had been the only woman uh, at Mullen when it was in a house, and there was only a men's room. Yeah, there was no women's room, but it was a real creative agency, a real yeah. advertising agency, and she could only get a job in a direct agency in New York because New York agencies at the time didn't consider out of town experience to be of the same level right. as New York creative experience. Wow! Even though Mullen was a real creative agency yeah. back then and is yeah. now. Um, it was such a prejudice in New York that I, I benefited. I got to work for a real conceptual advertising creative person. Yeah. Tell, tell us about her. What was she like? Uh, well, first off, she was smart. She, she had actually gone to Cornell and, and, and finished. Oh, okay. I think she studied English there. She was also though scrappy. She was from the Bronx, um, you know, Greek and Irish, uh, uh, you know, uh, woman from the, from the Bronx, um, who uh, who was literary and worked hard and moved to Boston with her husband who was in reinsurance and also another smart guy she met at, at Cornell. And um, the first assignment uh, that I did for her, I also did a day where I wrote, you know, 11 things and I brought them all to her. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget what she said. She looked at them, but just barely. And she said, I don't know whether this is the case for you or not, because I don't know you that well yet, Mark, but you seem like a bright guy. And this might be the first time in your life when something doesn't come easy to you, but the great ideas don't come easy. Go back for another couple of days at least, and then come back with something to me, with something for me that it really excites you. That's really the next level. Oh, wow. Bring me your best. How did that make you feel at the time? inspired, okay. challenged and inspired. I mean, uh, I mean, I think when she, she said it, my first reaction was, I was like a deer in the headlights. I'd never heard anything like, like it. So I was like, what is she saying? 
But by the end of the conversation, I, was, I, I mean, I just felt like she said, there is a holy grail. This ain't it. It doesn't come easy. I mm-hmm. felt like I was being treated like an artist for the first time okay. in my life. Like go and go and really dig, dig deep and come yeah. back with something. Um, and I did come back something with something I was proud of. It was ADT okay. was the client. And, um, and so it was uh, home security. Um, and uh, I, I, I ended up going into the materials and I found that they had this consultant who was a former burglar. Oh. Um, and I found in the middle of his, and it was a mail, it was a direct mail package because it, right. was, it was direct response, DRTV, direct mail print. Yeah. Um, so it was a direct mail package and a print ad. And so I had this guy and it's, it, and it, it, the line was, uh, it was a quote from him. It said, no lock ever stopped me when the door was locked. I just kicked it in. And so that was the way in. Wow. Um, and it wasn't. They used that way in for a long time because I, it worked. I remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it ultimately worked. It, it, it worked really well, but. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'd love to say, you know, that, that everybody, that, that everybody then recognized me as a genius or whatever. It was, it it wasn't like that at all. It's just that it wasn't the first idea, right? It was, it, Mm -hmm. it was the indirect route that made people feel and all of that. And so it was my first taste of, of creating that tingle, you know? And I was hooked. I wanted. I wanted more of that. And going into the materials and, and finding that little nugget. Um, yeah. I think Kashri talked about that uh, a while back. Uh, about you know that's where you find the. I think his thing was uh, he found that uh, this this one airline used planes from another airline, and it was it was like that. And the fact that they used their planes meant their planes were the best. And so that it was, uh, it's just that little nugget yeah. that sort of changes yeah. everything and makes you go, oh, there's a, there's a truth there. That, right. How uh, does the guy who, who drives the snowplow get to the snowplow, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, at 60 Researches. miles an hour, the loudest noise, that was yeah. in, a, in a brochure that they, from 30 years ago, right. earlier that David Ogilvy found. Yeah. So, and, and you and I, you talk about this a lot and, and guide us a lot to just go and actually meet the people and find out what the authentic truth is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I, so much easier than making shit up. <laughs> I think I'm in, I'm in, I, I love the exploration, you know, I think I love that. I love yeah. I, I love that explanation, that that exploration into what people really feel and believe and could feel. I, I love, I like, that's why I like being led by planners too. I love right. being led into, and, and one thing that we've lost with everything getting so quantitative yeah. uh, is the feel, just the real feel, the human feel of things. Right. It still matters. Yeah, it really does. Uh, the, so you, so you got that tingle, uh, mm-hmm. you're at BBDO direct. Uh, what, what's your next move? What, what do you, what do you do next? Yeah. So that was, so I got to, I got to work for, uh, Eileen, maybe the next seven or eight, eight months, uh, while that agency was sort of imploding ar- around us. And 
and there were layoffs. And I met Alan Rosenshine for the first time in 1986. I've been working with him yeah. more or less ever since at the with the, at the Partnership for Drug Free America, Partnership for Drug Free Kids, and yeah. now the Center on Addiction. But then he was the guy who showed up with a clipboard to fire the head of, of BBDO Direct, you yeah. know, and yeah. then leave. He was that that was his job even back then. Wow, as the CEO of BBDO. Um, but, uh, I ended up being a, so I, I got laid off finally, uh, you know, in like the seventh round of layoffs on a Friday, I think I was making $19,000 a year, um, living in the city, uh, living in Harrison, uh, with, uh, with at the time, my girlfriend and, uh, and our friend Bill from college. So three of us living on the second floor of a house in Harrison, mm-hmm. um, Taking it, the path train in, taking the uh, taking Metro North. Okay, yeah, I've calculated. I've spent two full years of twenty four hour days of my life on Metro North trains, <laughs> even though I did live ten years in the city. I, I live back out there now. Yeah. So. Um, oh, Harrison, New York. You're th- yeah. yeah, Harrison. Okay. Yeah, Harrison, New York, not Harrison, New Jersey. Yeah. So, um, so I got to let go, but then they called me back on Sunday night and they and said. Uh, we have a Black and Decker assignment that just came came in. Can you write it? And I said, sure. What what, what will you pay me? And they said forty dollars an hour. And again, I, I didn't do the math, but forty dollars <laughs> an hour seemed like a lot more than nineteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah. So I was like, this freelance stuff sounds great, but I had no portfolio. Right. So anything I touched at uh, BBDO Direct, I went to Eileen and I said, what can I do? <laughs> because we had seen people who brought in other people's work. Right, right. And once people knew that about them, they yeah. were out of the industry. And so I so anything I touched, I put in my book with and I made little cards that said, like, I mean, this is an exaggeration. The but if I trafficked it, I would right. say trafficked. <laughs> if I, you know, if I wrote the headline but not the copy, I would yeah. say wrote the headline but not the copy. Yeah. Because, you know, I need to take credit for something. So people, so, because I had yeah. some experience, yeah. but I didn't have a book. And then I started working on my own ads, but, but I ended up freelancing and I did some planning research mm-hmm. and I did uh, copywriting um, and I made uh, more money than you were. Yeah. But just a little, just okay. a little, you know, I, I think I went from 19 to 25 yeah. uh, or something. And you had to really hustle. And I had a hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I got some. I, I got one agency client, which was Deutsch, and that was that was uh, a good, another good place to to learn some things. Um, and then after that, I started to get my first real copywriter jobs and my first real panic attacks. <laughs> why? Why did the panic attacks start coming? Because I, I just I, I felt like I was just my my copywriting career was just put together with like tape and gum and bullshit, you know, and suddenly I had to sit in an office waiting for assignments. And again, it was a turbulent agency. My supervisor- Where was this again? This this was FCB. Oh, FCB. So this was, yeah, FCB. uh, It was like FCB Lieberkatz Direct or whatever at the time. My boss, the one woman who hired me was was let go the next day. Oh my goodness. So I just waited in my office and I'd get the occasional (laughs) assignment and- I, after a while, I nervously wrote a note to the creative director there who sat in front of a large portrait of Mick Jagger. It was the first open, it was all cubicles, but it was the first open space office ever. Yeah. Um, and it was ridiculous. Um, so I wrote him a note 
you know, because I, I had to assuage my anxiety. I was like, uh, you know, going to a shrink and I couldn't eat. Uh, and uh, I, I was starting to have social anxiety in meetings. Mm. Um, like I just couldn't sit there. I was just yeah. too on edge. I needed to prove myself or I was just going to go crazy yeah, yeah. or get out one yeah. or the other. Uh, so I wrote him a note and saying, I'm so happy to be here. Let's celebrate with some champagne. But I spelled champagne wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so from then on, I was the, I was the, even when he heard, I became creative director at Kirshenbaum years later. Yeah. I heard that he had said, what, the guy who couldn't spell champagne? <laughs> so, so it was a disaster. Oh my God. It was a disaster. It's, but it's good to know that like, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of mistakes you can make. Yes. There's lots of, you know, everybody makes them. Everybody's got those stories. I've heard them all. Um, that's amazing. How did you get, how did you get from, uh, from there? How did you get out of that sort of spiral of, of self, uh, fear and, and anxiety? What well, did it take? well, well, I did get some good professional help and I yes. and meditated, I, you know, and, uh, too, and I, I, you know, both really were, were, were really important. I mean, look, a lot of people get into this industry, they, 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 uh, it's too stressful for them. They get uh, anxiety attacks, panic attacks, or, mm-hmm. or or whatever, and they decide you know it's not worth it, and they 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 go into into something that feels more suitable for them. The thing for me was I realized I was in the right place, right? But I needed the self management skills if I could get them, so that I I could you know I could feel happy or, right. you know, I mean, it was, uh, it, so, I, so it reinforced my commitment because I was really willing to take pain for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I realized I needed, I needed to be good at dealing with my anxiety. Right. So right. no, you're not anxiety. You're not anxious because the world's about to explode or the plane's about to go down yeah. or the food didn't taste quite right or whatever. You're anxious because you have a big presentation on Friday Right. And you 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 you're afraid it's going to go really badly. Yeah. Like I needed somebody to help me realize that. Yeah. It yeah. didn't come naturally to me. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Once you didn't I wanna, realized you didn't want to admit to yourself that that was the thing you wanted to I was make up I other. was in my head and not yeah. focused on on uh uh the normal sources of my anxiety. Right. Yeah. I mean among other but the things. real world. The, the real world. Sources of anxiety. Yeah. Um and you, so you're freelancing for how long? Were you freelance until you? I freelanced for about. I think it's about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what that that led to was was uh, I was probably ended up spending fifty percent of my time at at Deutsch. Uh-huh. Um, and what, I and that gave me David Deutsch. Uh, Deutsch. It was it was called David Deutsch, but Donnie was there too at the time. Donnie yeah. Donnie had a little little experiment running in a little office in the back, which he proudly showed me. And when he first saw my work, he was like he 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 said. Yes, he, he he'll he'll be good, but but only let him do the direct stuff. Right. And when I got in and I started I to do that. things, he he opened up and he started to 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 put me on some of the integrated assignments and some of the advertising assignments. Yeah. And um, and that's when I really started to to feel like, oh, I think I could do this range. Right. Um, and that led to a job at Chapman. 
uh, direct. Okay. Where I, I got my first real, and I was a, a real like senior copywriter. Um, and then I got promoted. That's the first place I got promoted. Yeah. And the first, so that's the first place so I had stability. Yeah. Do you to, think the freelancing helped you to, to realize there's lots of yeah, ways? That yeah. You... I think I didn't know a lot of, you know, Kids go to ad school now mm -hmm. and they go to portfolio school. They get oriented to the industry um, and they still think they know a lot more about the industry than they really know when right. they, as, yeah. a, as a professor, <laughs> or as a former professor, yeah. um, you know, they, they still haven't really had their orientation to the industry. I yeah. didn't know anything. I thought the biggest was the best. Right, right. You know, that's why I wanted to go. To, I wanted to go to Ogilvy because I liked his Ogilvy. thought leadership, you yeah, know, yeah. and then- I ended up at BBDO and I thought it was second best. I didn't even realize BBDO was like the Yankees. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, it's funny. You know, I didn't know. I just didn't know. Um, so uh, how did you get to, so you, you go to Kirschenbaum in between starting yeah. your own thing. So what happened is what I, you... so from Chapman, I followed my boss to Thompson and there I was really an integrated creative director and, and working on, on, on things that I, that, that, that I loved and valued working on and working with, with, uh, uh, Burt Manning uh, on some things. And he was the chairman at the time and he was a real creative guy with a real creative background. Uh, and then I, re I really realized, okay, I'm an entrepreneur who happens to be in advertising and I want to start my own agency. And I felt like I learned about how do you get business? Mm. How do you get to a good brief? I studied all the briefs. How do you lead a department? How do you get people to come and want to work on your team and all of that? But I felt like I didn't really know how to do great work and mm. do all those other things too. Or not not do, how to build an agency that would be about great, great work that worked mm -hmm. and would be a good business too. Mm -hmm. So I decided I really wanted to be at Kirschenbaum mm -hmm. because at the time they were the agency in New York that exemplified that for me. I right. loved their taste. Their work was super strategic. They were growing. It was, they, they were making it stick, you know? Yeah. Um, and Richard at the time was trying to decide whether to even do direct or, or integrated work at all, because he felt like if we couldn't, couldn't do it really well, he didn't want to do it. He right. wanted it to be on brand or that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So he interviewed me. He asked, he said, you know, are you good or are you great? And I, I said what I thought was the truth, which is I said, I think I'm good. I, I think I could learn to be great if I'm in a great place. Um, and that's my goal. And I think the relative humility was really novel at that place at that right. time. Yeah. Thought, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's like, interesting. Wait. We could use one, probably yeah. like the Cornell guy. We could use one of those. Yeah. And Ex then he said, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's so weird. Yeah. S study Why that would, guy. Put yeah. him in the corner. He's, he's interesting. Uh, but it, it, it was the right time. I was ready and I wanted it more than a lot of, you know, a lot of the creative hot shots who showed up, if they didn't get their great portfolio pieces in the first six months, yeah, they were out. And for me, it was my route to the next level. Mm -hmm. And I worshiped in the sample closet. And yeah. I, I mean, my mind was open and I got to work with 
with, you know, great, great people. It was such know? an interesting place at that time. Um, you started there in what, 92? 93. 93. And I think you, you uh, were the next year, maybe? 94, or the year? yeah. 94, yeah. Uh, and yeah, what an interesting place to to go. Yeah. And then you, when did you decide, okay, now's the time I'm going to go start my own thing? Were you, had you been saving up and 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 doing all that or, or no was it, I, no was that it, was would have been just, good yeah <laughs> um so i was uh i was uh i was single and um and 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 i had freelancer skills mm-hmm. so i knew so so i didn't need that much money and i knew that if worse came to worse i could freelance mm-hmm. um and uh and then i was actually good at the set of skills that you needed to be to to, to live, not yeah. necessarily be rich, but to live as a freelancer. Yeah. And, and you had done the the uh, city Citibank Advantage card campaign, which got a lot of awards and right. So I, really yeah, well so I had and... the thing that my that my freelance competitors used to have over me when I was started as a freelancer, which I was positioned, right, and it really matters. So so I thought, you know, if worse comes to worse, I can make some money uh, freelancing. But this is the time, mm-hmm. you know, um, and. You know, I, I saw, I also understand, stood business well enough, maybe from being a freelancer or being business minded or whatever, to know that Richard and John already split the agency between two when they, when they started it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even though they made me a partner in a small way, I mean, um, they weren't really, they, they their plan wasn't really to grow the place to the to a size where that where they would have felt comfortable really letting other partners right. into the mix from an equity standpoint. Right. So I just thought I never want another job in advertising. I really loved that job. Yeah. Um, but I'd love the challenge of starting a place, and if and if it goes well, the rewards of starting a place. Yeah. Do you look back on that and think, well, I was naive or uh, would you do it differently? Or uh, when you first started uh, Demasimo Brand Advertising, I think it was called at the time. Um, I I don't even feel I wish I knew then what I know now. Right. Because I think if I did, I probably would have fucked like it up internet, in various what? ways. <laughs> yeah. No, the right. internet I would have been like that guy with the Beatles tunes and yeah. in the movie yesterday. Oh, uh, I haven't seen it yet. I, no, I, I really, no, I, it's, I, I don't, I think I did what I did at the time I did it and we're here Yeah. and it, it worked. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's it, like every agency, it, it doesn't mean it wasn't a rolling shit show. <laughs> I mean, many times it was a rolling shit show and all of that. And yet we did really interesting things in the middle of, yeah. of it. And we had, um, but it sounds like BBDO direct and Ogilvy, they were all rolling shit shows as well. I mean, I, I know oh, yeah. from freelancing yeah. myself that. Every place. Oh, is, and people at Kirschenbaum. I mean, you, you, it was hard to <laughs> it was hard to get in a conversation with three people there without people saying that it was a rolling shit show. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. weren't organized. Yeah, but I, I remember one guy having a party the day of his year anniversary because then he could quit. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, and I was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> like I was the kid. Like I love it here. Right. Why would you ever want to leave? <laughs> Our turnover was more than a hundred percent there. Wow. Our, but not in our group. Right. Because no. I, I, and that was my I thing. Like find people who are hungry. You really want 
what we have to offer here, which is the chance to prove yourself creatively. Right. Um, and instead of getting these people already think they're stars and then, you know, they pop in and they pop out. Yeah. So that, I mean, I think it did work, but yeah, it wasn't now, now people look back and say that was the golden age, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. but, but then people were walking and I was saying, don't get organized. I came from an organized agency. Yeah. You don't it want to get organized. Yeah, yeah. They organized all the creativity out of everything. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, so we're, uh, I think we're, we're running out of time. Yep. Uh, and, uh, but I just want to say thank you for, uh, for coming up here with me and, uh, we got to do this again. Tom, thank you so much. We do it every day. I love you, man. <laughs> I love you too. You made the A-list. Welcome to the A-list. You made the A-list. Now you're one of us. You made the A-list. The rich and famous. You made the A-list. Everybody else sucks. So that was my chat with Mr. Mark DeMassimo of DeMassimo Goldstein. He came into the studio. We actually just, we were in another meeting and we, I said, hey, we got to go do that thing. And then we, uh, we went upstairs and we did the podcast. And uh, it, was, it was interesting, right? To hear uh, the uh, young Mark DeMassimo finding his way through the world, writing dark short stories. Um, yeah. And now he, uh, he runs the most uh, inspiring action agency in the world. This has been The A-List, brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. I'm Tom Chrisman. Thank you for listening. Please rate us and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to be interviewed for an upcoming episode, contact us through adhousenyc.com. Uh, the A-List is recorded at Gramercy Post in New York City. You can get everything you need from Gramercy Post at gramercypost.com. Our engineer and editor is Matt Stillo. Our producer, Sierra Ziegler. Research assistant, Sophie Melcher. And special shout out to Phil Harris, who's in the studio today. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>